Elizabeth Holmes was such an appealing hero, or rather heroine. Avi Tavanian, a former top Apple man and one-time Theranos board member, explained it this way. You've got this really smart female CEO who's going to make herself super rich and who's going to do a wonderful thing for the world, right? It's a great story. You want it to work. We all want that to work. There are so few women at the top of the business world, even less in Silicon Valley. By the 2010s, the public was hungry for that to change. Valley veterans knew they had an image problem. And if you're talking image, Elizabeth had that on lock. With her blonde hair, blue eyes, and slim figure, she represented a cultural ideal of femininity. She was so easy to like, so easy to bet on. But it's always risky to bet on something that looks perfect, because no deal is perfect. If it looks that way, it's probably just hiding its flaws. And when you don't know what's true and what's a lie, you have no way to judge just how badly your gamble could go. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week, we met Elizabeth Holmes, a young entrepreneur determined to become a billionaire. She founded blood testing company Theranos at just 19 years old, then lied her way into millions of investors' dollars. Today, we'll see how Elizabeth aggressively guarded her secrets, because they only got bigger as time went by, and the consequences of people finding out the truth were catastrophic. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was January 2010. 
25-year-old Elizabeth Holmes' secret boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, was the new chief operating officer at Theranos, and his presence was helping her keep down persistent problems within the company. Problems meaning scientists who were nervous about the way Elizabeth presented their work to investors, or employees who didn't understand why they couldn't talk across departments. It made their jobs harder and slowed down progress on actually getting their blood testing device, the Edison, to work. But Elizabeth didn't care about making work harder for her employees. She had to keep tight control over Theranos if she was going to stop her secrets from getting out. That meant getting rid of anyone who had a problem with her or how she ran her company. Sonny handled the downsizing. He seemed to thrive in this role of enforcer. He was short-tempered and bombastic, a showy person who drove expensive cars and wore flashy designer clothes. Yelling people out of Theranos' offices with their cardboard boxes was just another part of the performance. So with Sonny putting out fires at the office, Elizabeth was free to spend all her time talking with investors. The thing is, her company was now six years old. She'd gone through funding cycle after funding cycle, raising $47 million, plus her latest coup, a $13 million personal loan from Sunny. But some of the investors were starting to get antsy. Revenue from the pharmaceutical contracts she'd told them about hadn't ever materialized because the contracts never existed in the first place. Still, Elizabeth knew she needed to show some progress so that she could bring in more investment, so that she could keep the company going, at least until her scientists finally got the Edison to work. But after years of unsuccessfully courting pharmaceutical companies, of trying and failing to turn those mythical contracts into reality, she had to admit nothing was going to happen there. Of course, Elizabeth wasn't the kind of person to let one failure set her back. She'd just have to pivot, find another way to keep the show on the road. That's when she settled on a new avenue, retail. In January 2010, she went to pharmacy giant Walgreens and made her pitch. She would put her Edison in their stores by mid-2011. Then, customers could stop by for a quick, affordable blood test done with a single drop of blood, all right on site. The easy access meant people would know about diseases earlier, they'd get treatment earlier, and they'd be grateful to Walgreens for playing a pivotal role in their health care. And, of course, Walgreens would make money hand over fist. Elizabeth had picked her target well. The 2008 recession had hit traditional retailers like Walgreens hard. Even two years later, the pharmacy was still trying to bounce back. So the pitch was very alluring. Where they were dated and struggling, Theranos was sexy, young, and exciting. The company had a female CEO, which was the kind of thing people got excited about. Plus, the whole thing had the sheen of the tech world. Maybe the one part of the economy that hadn't been trampled by the recession. Needless to say, they wanted in. Elizabeth was elated, but she played it cool and named her terms. Walgreens had to invest $25 million in Theranos for the pleasure of doing business together. And they had to prepay $50 million more for all the services the company would perform. And Elizabeth added, they'd have to do it all without having anyone assess the Edison. She had to protect her trade secrets after all. 
Surely her heart was pounding as she made that last demand. If anyone actually got up close with the Edison, it was all over. The device still couldn't do most of the tests she promised, and the ones it could do, it did unreliably. But Walgreens agreed. It was too good an opportunity to pass up, whatever the conditions. And so many experienced, respected academics and investors supported Elizabeth, so they probably figured she was the real deal. The contracts were signed by the end of 2010, and money flooded back into Theranos. And the only thing Elizabeth had to do in return was go to market in less than a year, which would be fine, she thought. By then, her lies wouldn't be lies anymore. The Edison would work. She'd make it work. Or rather, she'd force her scientists to make it work, since she never had the skills necessary to even try making her dream a reality. She'd have to tell Sunny to push harder, to get more aggressive with the staff. And if that didn't work, she'd tell a few more lies to buy time, as usual. Before we continue with Elizabeth's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show, including lots on the psychology behind lying. By the time Elizabeth pitched her deal to Walgreens, she'd been lying about her company for six years, and that may have made it easier for her to keep telling lies. In a 2016 study in the journal Nature Neuroscience, psychologist Dr. Dan Ariely and his colleagues showed that dishonesty can actually alter people's brains, making it easier to tell lies in the future. The effect is most pronounced when people don't suffer any negative consequences for their lies, like Elizabeth. So far, all the consequences had been positive. So even though her lies were getting bigger, easier to uncover, and potentially dangerous to the lives of real-life medical patients, she just kept going, faster and faster. After all, signing these Walgreens contracts created momentum. She had to use it. By parading around the Walgreens deal, she was able to attract more investors to her phony Edison demonstrations. Like the Walton family and the DeVos family, they invested millions more dollars into the company. With their cash, the valuation of Theranos went up and up into the multi-billions. This brought some huge names onto her board, men like former Secretaries of State George Shultz and Henry Kissinger, former Secretaries of Defense like General James Mattis, and former U.S. Senators Bill Frist and Sam Nunn. Theranos was getting bigger and bigger. From the outside, things had never looked better. That lost paradise Elizabeth had set out to recover for the once great Holmes family was here. But, of course, this paradise and all the money it was built on were predicated on the idea that the Edison would be in Walgreens stores very soon. And when that mid-2011 deadline rolled around, Elizabeth's scientists told her the device just wasn't ready. So she stalled with the pharmacy, explaining that the device was coming. She just needed time to get her product perfect, a few more tweaks. 2011 turned into 2012, and Walgreens started to get impatient, so she invented new stories to explain the delays. Perhaps inspired by her new acquaintance with Mattis and other military-associated board members, she told the pharmacy cryptic things about military contracts, 
about how the Edison was deployed in medevacs in Afghanistan. This important military work was taking so much of their energy, she said. That's why the Walgreens launch wasn't quite on schedule, but it was coming. Soon. So soon. The lies came out so easily, anyone would have thought they were the truth. But still, they were lies. Just like with those old pharmaceutical contracts, Elizabeth had approached the military about working together, but those talks never went anywhere. There was no contract. There wasn't even a functional device to deploy. Walgreens didn't know that, but by 2013, over a year after their original launch date, they didn't care whether or not the Edison was in Afghanistan. They needed Theranos to get the devices in their stores and start testing their customers' blood, just like Elizabeth had promised. Now. Elizabeth may have felt some amount of panic. Her scientists were still telling her the Edison was far from ready, that it wouldn't be ready any time soon, that this device was still years in the making, and that there was no ethical way to start using it on members of the public, just like they'd been telling her all along. But she couldn't admit that to Walgreens without admitting to all her prior lies. In her mind, what else could she do but just start testing patients' blood with her faulty device? Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to give patients' blood test results that were sometimes inaccurate. Surely they'd mostly be fine, right? Now, that's a messed up thought to have. You can't gamble with someone's health just to hide your own lies. But as writer Jessica Stillman explains, Lying, in effect, desensitizes your brain to the fear of getting caught or hurting others. Still, Elizabeth was well attuned to a fear of hurting herself, and despite her willingness to play with other people, she knew that if she handed over Edison's to Walgreens staff, they'd see the device didn't work. So, once again, she came up with a workaround one that didn't save Walgreens' patients from potentially bad test results, but saved her from exposure, one that kept the Holmes paradise going. She told Walgreens that because of supply chain issues, they couldn't put the Edisons in Walgreens stores, but they could start collecting blood in stores and then shipping it back to their labs for testing. That would work. She could make that work. They'd figure out something in the Theranos labs. That something turned out to be running the few tests they could do on the Edisons, despite the questionable accuracy of the results. Then, for the rest of the tests she'd promised Walgreens they could do, she purchased mass-market blood testing devices. Of course, those commercial analyzers were meant to run on much bigger blood samples than the single drops Theranos collected at Walgreens, supposedly for the Edison. But that was fine. They could water the samples down to make them bigger. Only, watering down the samples made the results from the commercial machines less accurate, too. And whatever Elizabeth was telling herself to justify it, for some of the scientists in the lab, playing with the health of real-life patients was one step too far. But they knew there was no point bringing up their concerns to anyone at the top. They'd seen Sonny yelling people out of the building. So they'd just have to turn to the people who might actually listen, like the press, and government regulatory agencies. Coming up, Elizabeth Holmes goes to war. 
Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Former Secretary of State George Shultz wasn't just on the Theranos Board of Directors. Like Don Lucas, he was so enamored of Elizabeth Holmes' charm and vision that he started seeing her socially, frequently. He loved that she was an inspiration for young women who wanted to get into business or science. And as it turned out, she also inspired young men. In 2013, George Schultz's grandson asked for help getting a job at Theranos. It was the perfect place to start his career out of Stanford, where he'd graduated with a biology degree. He wanted to help people to change the world, just like Elizabeth was doing. Tyler went into his new job almost awestruck. Erica Chung, another recent hire and college grad, was similarly enamored by Elizabeth. They bonded over their excitement, as well as their passion for science and doing good. So when they started noticing disturbing practices in the lab, they talked about them. Basically, they were helping water down and run Walgreens blood samples on commercial machines, which they knew wasn't best practice and definitely wasn't the cutting-edge technology they were promised they'd work with at Theranos but they were way more worried about the patient samples they were running on the Edison. Their managers told them the tests the machine could supposedly run, but when they ran quality control tests on their results, the results weren't up to par. As in, the results were not reliable. It was clear to even these new hires that the machines only worked sometimes. And yet they were told to ignore any failed quality control tests to throw away data points that indicated the machines were temperamental and faulty. Then they could send the test results to real, live Walgreens patients. Then there were the government-mandated proficiency tests. Basically, these are accuracy tests that the government demands every lab run on its equipment. The labs then send their results to a regulatory agency, which confirms they're good enough for the lab to keep operating. Obviously, the Edison would have failed these kinds of tests. So the Theranos lab only submitted data from the commercial blood analyzers they used. As far as Tyler and Erica were concerned, none of this was ethical. And yet every time they complained to their superiors, the lab managers just looked uncomfortable and said it was how things were done here. 
Now, Elizabeth has argued that she had no idea this was happening in her lab. She said that Sonny was in charge of lab equipment, and any shady instructions that scientists were receiving came from him. And that's exactly what Tyler hoped was happening. The Elizabeth he'd met at his grandfather's house was a visionary. She didn't seem like she'd ever risk patients' health by giving them bunk blood test results, which is why in early 2014, he went to her directly. Sitting in her glass-walled office, that black turtleneck setting off her pale skin, Elizabeth was strangely dismissive of Tyler's concerns. She was colder than he'd ever seen her at his grandfather's house. Tyler's claims about lab issues couldn't be correct, she said breezily. Perhaps he just didn't really understand all the complex science. Tyler left the meeting confused and disappointed. Even if there was an explanation, he'd expected Elizabeth would express real concern at even the small possibility her lab was acting unethically. After that, he tried speaking with other executives at the company, but everyone seemed to parrot Elizabeth's dismissals, if they were willing to talk at all. So Tyler wrote Elizabeth an email, reiterating his concerns in writing. The reply he got came from Sonny, who in his usual blustery manner, belittled and dismissed every concern Tyler had raised. He wrote, If this email had come from anyone else in the company, I would have already held them accountable for the arrogant and patronizing tone and reckless comments. And that's some real projection. Elizabeth and Sonny were indisputably the arrogant, patronizing ones in the story. But... Tone aside, the message was clear. If Tyler's grandfather wasn't on the board, he'd be fired. For Tyler, that was enough. Sonny's comments might be more aggressive than Elizabeth's tone, but the content of his email amounted to the same kind of dismissal Elizabeth had given him. He quit during the spring of 2014 after less than a year at Theranos. When he left the company, he tried talking to his grandfather about his concerns, but George Schultz wouldn't listen. He said that maybe Elizabeth and Sonny were right. Tyler was young and inexperienced. Maybe he just didn't understand the intricacies of practicing science in a real-world context. But Tyler did, which is why the 23-year-old went to John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal. Kerry Rue was the go-to guy for anyone who wanted to whistleblow on issues within the medical industry. By the time Tyler contacted him, he'd already heard whispers about Theranos. But no one who'd actually worked at the company was willing to go on record. Not until Tyler. Elizabeth was talking to the press around this time, too, but in an entirely different capacity. Throughout 2014 and 2015, she was getting called into speaking gigs about healthcare and business and gracing the covers of magazines. Now that Theranos was live in Walgreens stores, she was becoming a household name. She was fully embodying the role of the beloved girl boss CEO with her confident smile and mane of blonde hair. She was thriving. Likewise, her investors must have felt on top of the world. They'd bet on the right woman. That much definitely seemed clear in 2015 when the Theranos valuation reached $10 billion. But Elizabeth was promising people far more than money, as always. She emphasized the amazing accuracy of her blood testing technology and the way she was going to change the lives of Walgreens patients and all Americans. 
One particular story became the cornerstone of her media tour spiel, a story about her beloved uncle who died of cancer. It was detected so late and spread so fast that she never got to say goodbye. She developed a catchphrase to go with the story, too. Theranos was going to create a world in which no one ever has to say goodbye too soon. Now, most accounts suggest Elizabeth was never particularly close with said uncle, but she obviously understood the emotional appeal of sharing a personal loss. The empathy that garnered and the way it made people feel connected to her. This kind of behavior shows how adept Elizabeth was getting at manipulation, which, Dr. Susan Krauss-Whitborn explains, is a defining feature of psychopathy, along with a tendency to con others through lying and a, quote, glib form of charm. To be clear, Elizabeth was never diagnosed with anything that we know of, but she certainly seems to have had all these qualities. Those, and another signature quality of psychopaths, a ruthless lack of empathy. Psychopaths don't care who they have to hurt to protect themselves, and neither did Elizabeth Holmes. Inevitably, through all the noise of the camera shutters and the cries of adoring fans, Elizabeth got wind of John Kerry Rue's story. He was poking around, talking to former employees and talking to doctors in Arizona, where Theranos had launched its Walgreens testing sites. Apparently, he was looking for statements about odd lab results. And eventually, he sent Theranos a list of pointed questions about their technology, its capabilities, their lab practices, basically everything Elizabeth had spent the last 10 years fudging, exaggerating, and outright lying about. And... Elizabeth was horrified. But instead of facing the music, answering Carrie Rue's questions, and coming clean, she did the most her thing she could think of. She got angry at everyone who was messing with her, and she came up with a scheme to wriggle out of trouble, to buy more time to turn her lies into the truth. And she was gonna go big. She would court Rupert Murdoch, the owner of the Wall Street Journal. She'd get him to invest in the company, then have him kill Carrie Rue's story. How could he deny her once he had a vested interest in Theranos' success? Meanwhile, she'd crush Carrie Rue and his sources, so they never dared to speak up again. Carrie Rue, she immediately hit with legal threats. As for his sources, she already suspected Tyler Schultz. She also suspected Erica Chung, who'd quit soon after Tyler. They had to be the culprits, she thought, and they were young. They should be easily intimidated. She was right about all of it. After Tyler, Erica had agreed to talk to Carrie Rue off the record, and both young people were terrified when David Boyce came for them. He was one of the most brilliant, aggressive litigators in the country, and he hit them hard. First, his team sent them threatening letters, claiming they'd breached the rigorous NDAs Theranos employees all signed. The letter also warned them that they were going to be sued, but it didn't stop there. Theranos lawyers showed up at George Schultz's house looking for Tyler, hounding him to sign papers confessing that he'd spoken to Carrie Rue. He refused, but it didn't stop there. Tyler and Erica were also both followed. It was like something out of a psychological thriller. One of the letters Erica received from Boyce, hand-delivered at her office, was embossed with her home address, a new address that not even her family knew yet. 
Tyler's talked about how he started sleeping with a knife under his pillow, how he began to think about ending his life, and about the hundreds of thousands of dollars his parents spent on lawyers. For Erica, that wasn't an option. Her family didn't have the kind of money Tyler's did. She felt powerless, which had been exactly Elizabeth's intention. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's campaign to win over Murdoch seemed to be going even better. In 2015, he made a $125 million investment, making him the largest individual investor in Theranos to date. Once the check cleared, Elizabeth made her move. She asked him to kill Carrie Rue's story. It was imperative to the success of the company that it not go to press. But whether for morality, to protect the reputation of his newspaper, or because he underestimated the extent of Elizabeth's fraud, Murdoch said no. For the first time, Elizabeth's schemes weren't working. For the first time, lies and manipulation weren't enough to make everything look perfect. And there was no more time to become perfect either, because despite her best efforts, the story was going to print. The truth was coming out, and there was nothing Elizabeth could do about it. Coming up, Elizabeth's paradise crumbles. Now back to the story. Elizabeth Holmes spent October 15, 2015 at Harvard Medical School, where she was being inducted into the school's Board of Fellows. Meanwhile, her empire started crashing around her. John Carreyrou's story went to print in the Wall Street Journal that day, and it led other journalists to examine their coverage of Theranos. Looking back, many had to admit that they didn't adequately fact-check Elizabeth's claims about the Edison's capabilities. Pretty soon, investors were clamoring for answers. And Elizabeth tried to do what she'd always done, one last time, lie buy more time, deflect blame. The night the story broke, she went on CNBC's Mad Money and stated, this is what happens when you work to change things. And first they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden, you change the world. Then she fired Sonny Balwani and broke up with him. She seemed to think he could be her fall guy. He'd been her enforcer since he joined Theranos six years earlier in 2009. It was a bonus that his aggressive, often cruel attitude towards employees didn't make him look good. So she'd blame him. That was her path forward. She could save the company. She could save herself. But then came something even worse than Carrie Rue's article. After months of harassment by Elizabeth's lawyers, Erica Chung realized there was another way to fight back against Theranos, one that wouldn't involve an expensive army of lawyers, one that wouldn't cost her a cent. She reported the company to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It's the regulatory office in charge of investigating lab issues like those at the company. Once that report was on the books, she was an official government whistleblower, which meant she had protection under the law. It also meant that the government was coming for the Theranos lab with a surprise inspection. The agency tried to conduct it just three days after receiving Erica's report, but executives there convinced them to come back later. Arguing that the company was in the midst of preparing for the new fiscal year, it was a bad time. 
But when they came back in mid-November, the Wall Street Journal article was out. The CMS knew that if even half of what it alleged was true, they were about to walk into a disaster zone. It didn't matter what Elizabeth or her team said now, they were going in. Four days later, Elizabeth watched the inspectors leave with grim faces. Then all she could do was wait for the CMS report to come out. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But then the report came in at the beginning of 2016, and it was damning. The agency declared that the Edison's blood tests were so inaccurate, they posed immediate jeopardy to patient health and safety. Theranos was banned from running their lab for two years. And without a lab, there was no company. There was no way to push the scientists harder, to get the Edison to work better, to make the lies come true. After all of that, it was just over. All that was left was a confused public, with everyone wondering how this could possibly have happened. There was also a revised company valuation of $800 million, which took into account the $724 million in capital that Elizabeth raised over the course of 12 years, which sounds like a lot. But when it had been $10 billion, you can see how big the fall was. Finally, there were a whole lot of angry investors who knew they were never going to see their money again. In 2018, on behalf of these duped investors, the Financial Regulatory Agency, SEC, brought a civil suit against Theranos and Elizabeth herself. They were charged with deceiving investors by massive fraud. Essentially, they accused Elizabeth of making false and exaggerated claims about the accuracy of her company's blood testing technology. During her deposition, Elizabeth said it was anyone's fault but hers, Sonny's fault, the scientist's fault, even the investor's fault for misunderstanding where the company was at. And maybe she actually believed that. Maybe after all those years of contorting the truth for her own ends, she'd bought into her own lies. Perhaps she told herself that Sonny and the scientists should have made the Edison work, that they were really the ones who bore the most blame. Her job was to be the visionary, not to toil over blood and clunky machinery, as if she even knew how. As for the investors, many of them were supposed to be some of the smartest, most accomplished people in America. If they thought her company had promise, of course she was going to believe them. Then again, maybe she was just doing what she'd always done, lie and hope for the best. But of course, it was her fault. Her name was all over everything at Theranos. No one at the company ever doubted she'd been in control. She made the rules. She knew what was going on. She told investors and the press that the Edison could do tests her scientists had told her again and again that it couldn't. It didn't help her case that she oh so conveniently seemed to have lost her memory of her entire time at Theranos either. During her deposition, she said, I don't know, more than 600 times. No one bought that such an intelligent, well-spoken woman had such an abominable memory. Ultimately, Elizabeth did not win her civil case. To settle the charges, she paid a $500,000 fine, returned shares to Theranos, relinquished her voting control of the company, and was barred from serving as an officer or director of a public company for 10 years. But that was just the beginning of her legal troubles. 
In August 2021, after multiple delays and a global pandemic, it was time for round two, a criminal trial, the kind that can result in jail time. Initially, the grand jury actually indicted Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani together, but her legal team, some of the best of the best, protested. They alleged that Sonny was abusive to Elizabeth and that seeing him in court every day would be impossible for her. This alleged abuse is not something Elizabeth had ever spoken about before, and Sonny denied the accusation, but the court agreed to separate the trials. After that, the defense ran with the story. They alleged that Sonny controlled everything about Elizabeth's life, from her daily schedule to her food choices. I won't comment further on these allegations, however, because ultimately, the trial wasn't about whether or not Sonny was abusive to Elizabeth. It was about whether or not she perpetrated fraud by lying to investors and having her employees send Walgreens patients faulty blood tests. And on the stand, under oath, Elizabeth acknowledged that while Sonny influenced her, he did not dictate what she told investors or the press. The jury was left to assess the recorded calls and documents Elizabeth shared with her investors and to decide whether these contained lies. They listened to testimony by Theranos employees about the lab issues they discussed with her. And in the end, on January 3, 2022, she was found guilty on four counts of defrauding investors. She was found not guilty on four counts of defrauding patients because the jury decided that they couldn't, without a reasonable doubt, say that she'd known she was sending medical patients inaccurate results. But the split verdict doesn't change the reality. Elizabeth Holmes is going to jail. She'll face sentencing in September of 2022, and she's looking at up to 20 years. What a long, hard fall from the Holmes paradise of yesteryear. And yet, Elizabeth hasn't let this failure hold her back from the life her father dreamed for her. It's just she shifted gears a bit. As her employees found themselves without jobs, her investors realized they were out millions of dollars, and her company's patients realized they needed to get their blood work redone ASAP. Elizabeth started dating hotel heir Billy Evans. In 2019, she married him. In 2021, she had his child. These days, she's started wearing her hair down in loose, feminine waves, and she's been spotted at trendy Bay Area locales. No more black turtlenecks for this San Francisco damsel. She's reinvented herself and found another path towards money, prestige, and respect. For much of the public, despite her confirmed crimes, well, they're obsessed. Women lined up outside Elizabeth's criminal trial in black turtlenecks. They call themselves homies and say Elizabeth is a feminist icon, even if she messed up a few times. They love that even with a guilty verdict, even with jail time looming in her future, she seems to be doing pretty darn well. These people are definitely a minority, but they do point to a cultural fascination with Elizabeth, one that's actually gotten stronger since her fall from grace. Because if a female CEO who dominated the man's world of Silicon Valley is appealing, so is the idea of a woman who cheated the whole damn system. 
The economy is just getting harder and harder for young people to crack. There's rising house prices, inflation, older folks working longer, leaving young people with less opportunity. It's hard out there, whether you're working an hourly or salaried job, which makes the whole concept of get-rich-quick schemes more alluring than ever, and the scammers who perpetrate them more fascinating than ever. It's not just Elizabeth. She's part of a cohort of young scammers who've captured the public's imagination, like the Tinder swindler, like Anna Delvey. And if there's one thing these kinds of stories seem to have in common, it's that whatever success they might have had, these frauds couldn't stay ahead of the law forever. Lies on this scale are always going to come back to bite you. And for Elizabeth Holmes, they've almost certainly earned her a hefty prison sentence. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Nora Battelle, edited by Joel Callan, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Vanessa Richardson.